welcome to the sermon podcast coming to you from Normandale Baptist Church, located at 2001 Chapel Creek Boulevard, Fort Worth, Texas. My name is Dean Brightman, one of the members here at Normandale, and we are so thankful that you've decided to listen here and seek to know Jesus better. If our sermons have been meaningful in any way, we want to invite you to support the ongoing ministry of Normandale. The easiest way is going to normandale.org forward slash give. And thanks for listening. Everyone turn in the Bible to Daniel chapter 1. Daniel chapter 1. And so if you're unfamiliar with where that's at, just go to the table of contents, and uh, that will help you find your way there. Uh, That's what it's there for, to help you. It's in the Old Testament. And so we're going to be in Daniel as we go through this Advent season, uh, and then a little bit after in January, we're going to walk through the first six chapters of Daniel. And uh, I'll explain a little bit more about that uh, later. But this week I had a full circle moment happen uh, to where uh, growing up and beyond, uh, I've had to get a lot of uh, emergency room visits and urgent care visits, and I've had stitches five times, and I've broken bones, and a lot of good stuff. And, uh, and so, my dad was pretty used to the routine of having to go to the ER or having to go to the urgent care and, and all that. And so, when I was in fifth or sixth grade, somewhere in there, I was walking in the backyard, and there was a treadmill that was bent over, and it had a piece of sharp metal on it, and I was walking past it, and it caught the back of my calf and ripped the skin off. And, uh, and so I go inside, I'm like, it's bleeding, it's mad. I've, I've had stitches, I've got, I've got cuts, I know this is a bad one. And, uh, and so I go inside, and I'm like, Mom, Dad, like, I, I cut, I gotta have stitches, it's bad. And uh, it turns out the, the, there was no skin left to stitch up, but that's beside the point. Uh, at the time, we are like, oh no, it's not great, like, it's cut, it's, it's bleeding, and so I'm like, Dad, we gotta go to the ER. And my dad, this is dinner time, okay? And my dad's like, no one's going anywhere until we all sit down to eat. And so I'm sitting at the dinner table, furious that dad's not taking me to the ER and he's making us all eat dinner. But my dad wisely knows that the second we go to the ER, we're going to be stuck in line for the next six hours before they actually get us back to go get that stuff. And also, he's not looking forward to the $2,000 medical bill he's going to get for them to go wipe my leg off with a napkin, Okay. So this week, my son Barrett is following in my footsteps in that he was trying to put a hole in a piece of paper. So it was a, it was a really cute Thanksgiving craft that he had made. It was like a disguise a turkey kind of thing. It was really cute. And he was put, trying to put a hole in it to hang it up on a hook on his, in, his, in a room. And he had some scissors and he is holding it and slicing, trying to put a hole through, or tr- holding the, the paper, trying to put a hole through the paper. And it slides through and slices his index finger open pretty bad, okay? And so I'm grilling chicken, and June comes out, and she's like, Dad, Mom needs you inside. And so I'm like, okay, I'll go inside and I'll look at it. And I go inside, and she's got this paper towel on his finger, and it is soaking through red, okay? It is, and so it's, it's not good. And so we peel it off. And I look at it, and I'm like, I'm, I'm a stitches expert. I know when something needs stitches now. And this needed stitches, okay? And, uh, and so I'm like, well, I know the routine. I know how long this is going to take. 
So I'm like, okay, so I'll go get, here, put pressure on it. We'll go get some bleed stop. I've got chicken on the grill, so let's get that finished, and we'll be able to make plates, and we'll be able to get that going. Okay, so she's sitting on the couch holding Barrett while he's crying. He's five, and applying pressure. We put bleed stop on it. We get dinner together. We put it in to go, and then we, then after getting the dinner for us, then we head over to the Cook's Urgent Care. Now, why do I tell you that? Because in, in this situation, there are many different decisions that need to be made, need to be made, right? You're assessing this circumstance that's been handed to you, and you're like, what do I do in this moment? Okay, do, do, does this thing need stitches or does it not need stitches? How do I handle this? But meanwhile, like, do I get bleed stop? Do I not get bleed stop? Do I apply pressure? Do I not need pressure? Does he just need a Band-Aid and get over it? Or is this, does he need more help? Okay. Also, chicken's ready. Should we stop and eat the chicken before we go to the doctor, or do we need to go immediately now? Is this that big of a deal? Also, do you go to the urgent care, or do you go to the ER? You got to assess. Do I want to pay $2,000 or $300? Which one's more important to me right now, right? Like, how, like what level of care? And so there's, there's a lot of decisions that need to be made in this circumstance that's just handed to you on a Monday night that you are not hoping to see, Right? Now, I tell you that because in Christianity, there are some aspects in which you and I have a very clear understanding of what God desires from us. It's black and white. For example, in killing or battling sin, we know that God is very clear about adultery or idolatry or striking someone in anger or lying on your taxes, or lying to your wife, or stealing something, or gossiping, or coveting, or being a, a, a glutton, right? We know that God is very clear that this is not good, and He wants us to flee or kill that in our lives and to run away from it, to repent. Likewise, we also know it's black and white that God desires us to build up His church, to share the gospel with our friends, with our neighbors, with our family. We know that God desires us to read his word and to spend time with him. He, we know that he wants us to pray. We know that he wants us to seek the, like joy. He know, we know it's black and white. That's what God desires from us. But as we assess our time, our lives week in and week out, the content of each day, the vast majority of our lives and decisions we make fall into a different category altogether, into the gray. Matters of wisdom, matters of I've got a, this circumstance that's been handed to me, and I've got to figure out how do I handle this? What do I do in this moment? There are millions of decisions that you make in your life that are not black and white, but are gray. And you've got to look into this and say, what do I do? What do I do with this moment when I'm not totally sure exactly what God desires from me in this? For example, and I'll give you a ton of examples. I could give you a ton of examples, but I'll give you an example, a couple of examples. Making certain medical decisions in your life. Two, deciding what, uh, what shows you should watch on TV. What's the level of acceptable uh, sinful things in the show that you're, you're allowing your, yourself and your family to watch? Like, how, how do you decide what's, where's the line for you? You've got to make that decision, right? It's gray. Also, think about deciding, like, how do you spend your money? What's the proper level of money to give away? 
What's the proper level of money to spend on your hobby? What's the proper level of money to spend on Christmas gifts? You've got to decide. It's gray. You've got to make decisions that like stem from that all the way to what should be on your family's dinner menu each week? What kind of food should you feed your family? Like, should you spend more money on more fresh produce, or should you save some money and buy, buy more frozen meals? Like, which, like, what do you do with that, right? Or should your parents move in with you as they're aging, or should you find a, a medical facility that's caring for them? Like, what do you do? It's matters of wisdom. Like, should you discipline your child over that semi-funny thing or not? Like, what do, you, what do you do? Or should you attend your gay friend's wedding reception or not? Or, or should you give money to the guy on the street corner or should you not? And so each, each day is filled with all of these gray decisions in which you are trying to walk and you've got to, like, and, and, so, like, and so most of these exist, like, in this kind of gray area to where you're like, maybe I should do this, maybe I shouldn't do this. How does my faith want me? Like, what does Jesus want me to do in this situation? And often, the answer is not totally clear. It's often not totally clear. And so, there's a question, as we begin to look at the, 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 the book of Daniel, it's how does faith in Jesus affect these kind of questions? Or to ask it better, how do you and I walk by faith in the gray? How do we walk by faith in the gray? That's what the first part of Daniel is getting at. And so there's a guiding teaching from Jesus that, that governs this chapter and really all of life. And it's from Matthew chapter 22, verse 37. It's Jesus, you probably know it, but if you don't, here's what it is. Jesus said, this is what the greatest commandment is, to love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your mind. That is the greatest commandment. That is the thing that God wants for you. And that's a guiding text, a guiding teaching for us as we begin to look at how do we exist and how do we live by faith in a gray world. And so here in the book of Daniel, what we see is a group of teenagers, actually, who are forced into a new, a difficult situation, a new circumstance in their life in which they're thrust into a new kingdom with with. with a culture and a kingdom that's opposed to their God, and they want to seek to live out their faith in their God in that world. That's, what they're, that's where they're at. And so this, let's look at the text together. Let's pray, then we'll begin to look at the text together. And so, Father, we come before you, and we thank you for your word. Again, we thank you for your wisdom towards us and your grace towards us. And so as you open up this first chapter of Daniel, God, I pray that you would speak to us and fill us with faith and with comfort in your grace. Help us to see the faithfulness of Daniel and ultimately the faithfulness of Jesus as an example for us of how we can walk by faith, but to do it not just to make you love us or to be better, but to do it out of love for you because of what Jesus did for us on the cross. And it's in His name we pray. Amen. So let's look at the text. In the third year of the reign of King Jehoiakim of Judah, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon came to Jerusalem and laid siege to it. 
the Lord handed King Jehoiakim of Judah over to him, along with some of the vessels of the house of God. That was the, the temple. Nebuchadnezzar carried them to the land of Babylon, to the house of his God, and put the vessels in the treasury of his God. The king ordered Ashpenaz, uh, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the Israelites from the royal family and from the nobility, young men without any physical defect, good-looking and suitable for instruction in all wisdom and knowledgeable, perceptive, and capable of serving in the king's palace. He was to teach them the Chaldean language and literature. The king assigned them daily provisions from the royal food and from the wine he drank. And they were to be trained for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to attend the king. Among them, from the Judahites, were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And the chief eunuch gave them new names, gave them names, and to the name of, to, he gave the name Belteshazzar to Daniel, Shadrach to Hananiah, Meshach to Mishael, and Abednego to Azariah. Now, Daniel determined, actually, we'll, we'll get to that in just a second. So this first part, here's what's going on in this text. The Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar has decided to take some of the royal teenagers, the, the kids of the royal, the, uh, the uh, honored families in Judah, into his tutelage. He was bringing them into this new Babylonian management uh, pipeline, essentially. Now, what he's doing in this is he is taking these Jewish, Jewish leaders and is going to bring them into becoming Babylonian leaders. He wants them to, to follow Babylon, Babylonian thought, Babylonian culture, Babylonian literature, Babylonian language, Babylonian religion, and take on a Babylonian identity, right? And this is an important thing for us, and especially important thing for Jews, because you and I don't necessarily tie ethnicity to religion. Like, you can be an American, you can be white, you can be black, you can be whatever, and you don't have to be a Christian. But for these guys, being an ethnic Israelite meant being a Jew. It meant Yahweh being your God. And so what this guy was doing, what Nebuchadnezzar was doing, is he was trying to take these Jewish teens and turn them into Babylonian leaders. And by extension, what that meant for them spiritually is that they were going to be leaving Yahweh their God and taking on the Babylonian gods themselves too. And so that's kind of in the background, looming in the background of what's happening in this text. Now, why would the king be doing this? What's, what's happening here? Possibly it was all about control. See, Nebuchadnezzar was not an idiot. He was a really good king in the sense that he was politically wise. And so he was taking on this Israelite territory. And so how do you get these people under your control? You get the nobles under your control. You get the leaders of those people under your control. And so if you get the teenagers of the noble families to become leaders in your organization, then everyone else is going to follow them. You know why he's wanting to do that? Because the nation has already demonstrated that they're ready to rebel against him. That's why he had to lay siege to Jerusalem. He laid siege to the nation because Jehoiakim tried to rebel against him. And so he came in and is like, you guys are done with that, and I'm going to take this route. Instead of just coming in to kill all of you, I'm going to come in and I'm going to turn your noble leaders into Babylonian leaders so that way you'll follow them and be peaceful in my kingdom and not be problems for me anymore. That's what he's looking to do here. But you've got to think, this is an important thing spiritually for all these teens, 
for the nation itself, right? And so this book, what's happening in this book is, is this nation's in an exile period. They rebelled against God, and so God's bringing judgment against them. And so the, for the nation, it's important because it's, it's, a, it's about them, but it's also about these teens, these people who are physically living during this time through no fault of their own are now experiencing the judgment from God of having to be exiled and living in this foreign kingdom. And so there's a governing question of exile came because the people of God rebelled against Him. And so the question is, is will any remain faithful to God in this new season? Are any going to remain faithful to God? Is there going to be a remnant at all? Will the nation repent and turn to God? And the second question is this, is will God go with them into exile? Or is He going to remain in their, their land? Is God going to go with them? while they're there. Now, here's what the king sets up. Here's his management process, his management pipeline. He sets up this new, this new system in which these guys are getting trained daily and uh, uh, to where they're going to become fully dependent upon the king. They're getting trained in literature, trained in language. They're taking on Babylonian identities. And then an important thing here in the book is they're also getting their daily food from the king's table. See, what he does is, verse 5, the king assigns them daily provisions from the royal food and from the wine that he drank. And on one hand, this is an incredibly great honor. The king of Babylon is sharing his food with these teens, these Jewish teens. That is a very high honor because no one ate the king's food unless you were closely aligned and in favor with the king. So it's a really great honor. But on the other hand, Daniel was looking into this, and he's saying, this is my new season of life. This is the new circumstances that I've, I've been kind of handed. And so his question is, what would this do to me spiritually? Where is this going to take me? And so there's a couple of truths about David that I want you to know, I mean about Daniel that I want you to know. One that we're going to learn about throughout this book is that Daniel loved God. He had a real relationship with him. It wasn't just like a tradition thing that his parents just made him go to church. Like he, he was a teen, and he loved God. The second thing about Daniel that I want you to see is he had strong convictions. He was tied into his conscience. And the third thing is that his worldview, how he viewed the world, was very relationship with God-centric. His faith was the lens through which he viewed his world. And it's very important for us, right? Because he was aware of what dependence upon this king might mean for him spiritually, like what it, what, what it might do to him if he like kind of lived in it for a while and just saw it play out in his life. And so he was looking at this with conviction, with discernment, wondering, where might I be spiritually if I allow myself to be fully dependent upon this king? He's like, if I just give myself over to this new thing that's just handed to me, and it's an amazing opportunity, but if I allow myself to live in it, what's going to happen in my heart? Am I going to subtly move from loving Yahweh to loving the king's stuff? Am I going to move from loving, loving my God into loving the power of the king? loving the nice wealthy things of the king, the luxuries of the king? 
the people of the King? Am I going to start loving Him and what He gives me more than my love for God? That's what Daniel's wondering. He's wondering about that. And so, he's, he's looking at this. He's like, I've got to make decisions over like, is this stuff that the king's giving me going to pull me away from Christ or pull me toward Christ? And he's like, I've got, to make, I've got to make decisions about this, about what do I do in this situation? See, here's the thing. Daniel never lost faith that God, like, left them. Daniel believed that God was there in Babylon with him, and so he was going to follow and demonstrate love for him in the ways that he could or that were in his realm of, of, uh, of options, Right? Now, here's the thing about Daniel. He wasn't passive in his faith. He was super active in it. He was proactive to ensure that he was putting things in his life and keeping things in his life that were going to pull him towards his God and not push him away from his God. And so, what he needed to do here, what he demonstrated in his heart, which we're going to see in verse 8, is that he needed to express physically what was currently true spiritually, like to move his faith from the realm of theory to the realm of real life. See, look at verse 8. Daniel determined that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank, so he asked permission from the chief eunuch to not defile himself. You see, Daniel up to this point, he got a Babylonian name. But that wasn't unique to him. People change names all the time. They didn't fundamentally change who he was. Daniel also was learning the Babylonian language and culture. But he's existing in the Babylonian country. So he's kind of forced to. It's not really, that's just the nature of it. But the third thing that Daniel received was eating from the royal table. And very few people did that. Very few people had that kind of access to the king and to the king's things. And Daniel saw this as a thing that was, maybe this is a privilege that ties me a little too closely to the king here. Maybe this is something that's, that, like, that's pulling me a little bit too close that, that might lead my heart to love him more than I love God. And so, see, the, the problem wasn't the food. Like, the food wasn't, like, the food was good. There's no, the, the food and the wine, totally great. It's like, that was not the issue here. The problem for Daniel is that it was the king's food. It was the king's wine. It was the nicest stuff. And so, for Daniel, partaking in this stuff meant aligning himself with and living dependently upon this pagan king, which for him was deeply spiritual. It was a deeply spiritual thing. And it wouldn't have, it, it, like, it would have meant a step away from, at least in his mind, a step away from devotion to Yahweh and a step toward devotion to this king. Now, just if you and I take a step back, right, and we just assess this, this chapter, you might consider this, like, you might wonder, what's the big deal? Like, what's the big deal about eating this food? Didn't, didn't Joseph go to Egypt and eat that Pharaoh's food? And it, the Bible says that God used what was evil for good, right? And Daniel, I mean, and Joseph went and rose up to become second in command in Egypt, and it was a great thing that he became an Egyptian because it saved all of his people, right? Like, so, like, if, if this is a similar situation, 
what's the deal about the food? Like, what does it matter if this? You know what's interesting about this? Here's why it was important. It was a matter of Daniel's conscience. It was a matter of Daniel's conscience. See, look at verse 8. Daniel, what? Determined. Daniel determined that he would not defile himself. It wasn't a command from God. God didn't tell him in a dream, that food's bad, you need to stay away from that food, get away from it, you lead all your friends away from it. No. It was Daniel looking at this gray situation in his life and determining for himself, according to his conscience, how God was leading him to react in this moment. It was his conscience that led him to make this decision. See, my, my text says determined. You might have, if you have an ESV, it says Daniel resolved, or the NASB says he made up his mind. See, the text says he resolved this in his own heart. He made this decision about his own faith for how he was going to handle this situation. It was a matter of personal conviction for him. See, there wasn't a law from God. Daniel was just responding to his circumstances and said, how can I love God in this situation? How can I respond to this situation in the best way that's going to pull me toward my God and not away from my God? See, faith is an active thing. Faith is a very active, personal thing. It's not to say there's not guardrails or that everything is relative at all. We have guardrails. Scripture is very clear on that. But in the gray matters of our lives, we have to express our love for God in certain ways, like when, we're, when, we, look at the, when we look at this. So there's a lesson here. Um, I think for me, with regard to personal agency and free will, so like, it's a lesson to not hold too tightly to our theological system when we're coming to a text. So, there's two camps generally in theological world. You've got Calvinism and you've got Arminianism, and there's, there's a, a spectrum in there. And, and generally, Arminianists hold to the idea of free will, free will, that you will, uh, that faith comes before regeneration, which means that God saves you in response to your faith. And you decide for yourself whether you're going to turn to God or not. Calvinists argue that regeneration comes before faith, meaning that it's the Holy Spirit working in your heart that leads you to then care about God, to gain the faith, to then believe in Him. So you've got these two different ideas of Calvinists and Arminianism. And so there's a question is, where does free will line up in the, in the, in the spectrum of God? Where does free will go? And if I'm honest, if I'm just blunt... If I had to pick a hat, I've got to pick a team. I pick the Calvinist team. And I, I, don't, I just, I, that's, the, that's the camp that I'll put myself in. And I've preached some very Calvinistic sermons in here. But there's a lesson for me in this text to not hold too rigidly because when you have that theological system applied to the text, it can present some pitfalls. To where, in my mind, I struggle with the idea of faith itself and the decisions that you and I make each and every day about pulling us towards Christ or away from Christ. And this text is really clear that there is agency. The decisions that you make are very important, and they're also your decisions. They're your decisions. Like the decisions that you make are going to pull you towards Jesus or pull you away from Jesus. And Daniel is doing that here. Like things aren't set in stone. 
Things aren't set in stone. You can make decisions that pull you towards Jesus or away from Jesus. And so the crux of this here is our, our Daniel's convictions. It was Daniel looking at a situation saying, this thing is going to pull me away from Jesus or pull me away from my God. And so I'm going to make a decision to ensure that I'm still going to be dependent on my God over and above this king. That's what he's saying here. And so Daniel's looking at this saying, I want to love God. And so I'm going to make this situation a situation that expresses my love for God. Now, you and I also have different circumstances handed to us all the time. Whether it's your kid getting, needing stitches, or it's a medical thing, or it's an adoption thing, or it's a child thing, or it's a work thing. You have different circumstances that are handed to you, and by faith, we are called to respond. We're called to live in our world. We're called to see where we're at and then decide in accordance with the Word, how do I best love God in this new season or this new experience or this new circumstance of life? So I, was, uh, uh, I asked a prominent, uh, at the time, a prominent older pastor, um, how do you decide what to preach? And I was expecting like a really spiritual answer, right? Because I, I was, and this was, this was uh, probably 10 years ago, 15 years ago. I was expecting like a really spiritual thing of like, I'm going to go in my room, I'm going to be quiet, I'm going to pray, and then the angels are going to come down and they're going to express, you know, like, and you know what he told me? He said, you get up in the morning, you eat breakfast, you pray, and then decide. <laughs> I was like, oh, <laughs> that's it. Like, not everything's set in stone. Like, things are a matter of wisdom. You know why we're going through Daniel? Because I was planning on teaching through the, the women in the genealogy of Jesus Christ uh, heading up to Christmas. I was going to look at their stories, but I accidentally left out Tamar. Uh, and so I realized on Monday, oh, no, there's a fifth woman in this. And so there's only four Sundays till Christmas. And so I was like, oh, no. And so I was like, I guess I'm going to do Tamar first. It's going to bump it back. And then Jared looks at me on Monday, and he goes, so Christmas Eve is a family service, and you're going to teach David and Bathsheba then? <laughs> I was like, I guess not. All right, let's find something else to do. And so we went to Daniel. Things aren't set in stone. It's a gray world. It's a matter of wisdom. You see, I was watching The Sound of Music this week with my family. I actually, we watched it in a couple settings. And uh, I'd never really watched the whole movie before. Um, by the way, last 30 minutes... Excellent, okay? And uh, it's where it gets cool. The Nazis come, you know? And, uh, but in that Nazi part, you have some nuns who, uh, who are trying to hide the, uh, the Von Trapp family, okay? Spoiler alert, although it came out in 1965. Uh, they get away from the Nazis, just say no. But the Nazis are coming, and these nuns are hiding them in their little chapel area thing, their, their monastery, whatever you call it. And, uh, and, and so, what do they do when the, when the Von Trapps get this, I guess the nun's car? I don't know whose car it was. They steal a car, and they run away and get to the mountains, and the Nazis run out to get in their cars, and their cars won't start. And the nuns turn to their mother, lady, and they're like, hey, we have sinned. And they pull out some parts in their car. I don't know if it was a fuel pump. I don't know what it was. It was weird. I don't know how they did it so quickly and so silently. But they pulled out a couple different car parts, 
and, and, and the cars won't start. Now, in ordinary times, love for God means helping someone's car start. But then times change. Circumstances change. And love for God at that point means preventing a car from starting, right? You see, on any given day, we're confronted with so many matters requiring conviction, so many matters requiring wisdom. And so the question for you and me looking at this text is this. Does your faith guide you? Does your faith guide you? Do you consider, how can I best love God in this new season or this new circumstance? Like, do you, do you think about that at all? Like, do you have conviction to say no to things in your life because it will pull you away from Christ? Or do you, do you have conviction to make the necessary changes in your life in order to love Him better? Have you considered that recently? So I, I, I think I've told you guys about this before, but it's happened to me. I was riding my bike uh, probably a year or two ago, and I used to, I used to love this, this book series called The Gray Man. There's actually a, a Netflix movie that came out uh, from the first one. And it was about this cool assassin guy, and... Uh, because I'm not that. And it's like, oh, that looks awesome. And, uh, and I loved these books. They were so engaging. They were so real, well written. And after about four of them, I started to, f- like, as I was writing one day, it just hit me. I need to stop reading these books. And I got mad about it. And I'm like, it, it, like, it literally, it was all of a sudden, I, was, I loved these books. And then as I was riding my bike, it was like, stop reading those books. And the rest of my ride, I was mad at God for feeling conviction that I needed to stop reading these books. And I got home, and I told Dara about it. And I was like, Dara, I just feel like God's telling me to stop reading the books. And she's like, well, what do you want me to tell you? <laughs> and, uh, and so I went to my Kindle, and I deleted the books off my Kindle. And later on, I was thinking about it, and I realized I didn't, I just missed it. The problem with the books is that the language was so bad that it was getting into my mind just in my day-to-day life. And I went back later, and I got pulled up one of the Kindle books, and I just searched the Kindle book for the F word, and it was like 125 uses of it in the book. And I just had, I just missed it. I just wasn't, I just thought it was fine. But later on, as I was just driving, or as I was <laughs> driving, I'll get back to that again, was, or, or as I was driving, or as I was you know, riding, or I'd get mad about something, those would be the words that would come to my head. You know, one of my biggest fears is preaching and then having a cuss word come out. I don't know. Would I be? I don't think. I, would I, Would you fire me? I don't know. Let's try it. No, no, I'm just kidding. But, but it was it was conviction that God was telling me get that out of your life. And uh, and so I did it. And so for Daniel, this food for him was a matter of strong conviction. He desired to do what he could to distance himself or to, from the king in order to fully devote himself to his God. And so the matter that was presented to him to be able to do it was the food. Now, I think there's another part here, but we're out of time today. And so here's where I'm going to leave you. Is the last question is 
what does this have to do with Christmas? <laughs> it's Advent, right? What on earth does this have to do with Christmas? You see, the call from Daniel's life, at least in these first nine verses, are he's looking at his situation saying, how can I love God with everything in me given I live in a gray world? And the call for you and me is, yeah, look at him and see an example in that. But ultimately, what his demonstration here points to is to the one who came at Christmas, who came not only just to come and live a life, but he came to give every bit of his life away in order to love the Lord his God with all of his heart and with all of his soul and with all of his mind, living in full obedience to him, so that to the point of the cross, you and I would be able to live by faith in him, and in response to what he's done for us, we might be able to love God not in order to make God love us, but simply out of gratitude, simply by grace, to where you and I can live to love God and live in our gray world and recognize, yes, I'm making a decision, and I'm just going to go with it and trust that God's going to do something with it. I'm going to trust that this is a fine decision, and I'm going to walk by faith in making this decision. And because of the one who came to give everything to love God, you can do that and not worry about whether God's mad at you about it or not. But you can do it walking in the grace that that son brought. Does that make sense? And so as the band comes up, here's the story of the nativity. Here's what happened with that. You see, Jesus was the Son of God who came to live the perfect life that you and I never could, to always make the right decision in our gray world, to demonstrate full wisdom, full knowledge of God, to express exactly what God was like, and to the degree of demonstrating His full love for God, He went to the cross and gave up His life in order that you and I, if we believe in Him and His work on the cross, might gain forgiveness and might gain a new life to be able to walk with God, just like Daniel, in grace and not by fear. And so this morning, if you're here and you've never given your life to follow Jesus, if you ever responded to Him by faith, here's what you do. You turn to Him by prayer and you say, Jesus, I want to love God, but I can't do it perfectly, but I heard that you did. And you gave your life on the cross and you resurrected from the dead. And by doing that, you bought me forgiveness and now you bring me grace to where I can know God and not do it out of fear, but do it as a loved child. And that's how you become a Christian. 